And believe it or not, we did not rehearse this together, but his uh, closing comments pick up exactly where I want to start, and not with the beginnings of Islam, although I'll get to that in a minute, but I actually wanted to start with uh, sort of some more current uh, matters, um, and then talk about how uh, earlier Islamic history in Iraq helps to shape the self-perception of Iraqis today, so it's exactly the same issue of identity formation and uh, sort of national conscious building that uh, Professor Gibson just alluded to with reference to the ancient monuments and glories of ancient Iraq. The borders of today's Iraq are, of course, as most of you probably know, quite recent, uh, sketched out in the post-World War I uh, treaty negotiations, especially involving France, England, and the Ottoman Empire. And to a certain extent, we might say that they're artificial, just as actually all of the borders in the Middle East are artificial. They were really drawn with the interests of the European powers in mind and not with the interests of the people in the Middle East. Uh, the area that we call Iraq today, in other words, before 1920, was not, as a whole, within those borders, was not a discrete geographical or cultural or usually political unit uh, in medieval. Of course, the word Iraq is known way back to uh, the beginnings of the Islamic era, and in fact, probably back into the Sasanian period, so just before the rise of Islam. Uh, in medieval Arabic geographers, the word Iraq uh, referred to the lowlands, the alluvium of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, uh, usually defined as being from somewhere around the famous city of Tikrit, a little north of Baghdad, down to the Persian Gulf. It did not include the mountainous fringes of Iraq to the east or to the north or for that matter, the deserts to the west. Um, it is true, of course, that at various times, the center of the country around what is now Baghdad uh, was tied to the north, northern parts of what is today Iraq around the city of Mosul for especially uh, the grain trade, the grain from the plains around Mosul was extremely important in sort of keeping Baghdad alive in its heyday, provided the basic foodstuffs for the city. Um, and the center of the country around Baghdad was also tied to the south and the area around Basra for commercial reasons uh, at many times. These areas were, as Professor Gibson noted, uh, they had a complementarity and so they sometimes served as very good markets for each other's goods and so on. Uh, but this was a kind, of, a kind of thing that came and went. Uh, actually, if you look for patterns that repeat or recur, the strongest pattern, its historical pattern in this region, it seems to me, uh, is a pattern in which you have a powerful state uh, on the Iranian plateau, uh, one of the many Persian empires or large states in Iran, which then uh, expands down into the lowlands of Iraq, which are sort of right next to it, just to the west of it, and are very desirable because they have this incredibly rich tax base in the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. And that sort of becomes the, shall we say, uh, financial powerhouse or the, the source of the uh, regime's real power even though the regime itself based in Iran and sort of having a kind of Persian cultural outlook on things uh, is not part of Iraq but it takes Iraq over. So we see this pattern again and again uh, certainly with the Achaemenids and from the 6th to the 4th centuries uh, before the Common Era, the Parthians sort of from the 3rd century B.C. to the third century of the Common Era, the Sasanians from the third century of the Common Era up to the rise of Islam in the seventh century, 
and then after, with the rise of Islam, uh, especially under the Abbasid dynasty uh, from the 9th to uh, 10th centuries in their heyday, what you see is a kind of reversal of that. You have the dynasty seated uh, in Iraq, dominating uh, Iran and many other areas from their base in Iraq. So you have a kind of reversal of the imperial uh, construction, but it's still both of these places are tied together. But then once the Abbasids really lose their grip on power in the middle of the 10th century, uh, their successors, the people who rule a good part of this area are uh, sort of mountain warlords from Iran, the so-called Buya dynasty. Uh, when the Seljuk Turks come through the area in the 11th or 13th centuries, again, they they control Iraq or good parts of Iraq, but they, in a sense, identify more with the highlands, although they, again, are a different ethnic group. Uh, when the Mongols come through in the 13th century, they too take their seat of power in the highlands uh, around Hamadan and so on in the Zagros Mountains of Iran, but uh, dominate Iraq and so on. Um, and in the somewhat more recent period, under, in the, the Ottoman period, I guess we can call it, from this early 16th century up until the First World War, um, the Ottomans control Iraq as a province of the Ottoman Empire, generally speaking, for that roughly 500 year, 400 and some year period. But there are repeated efforts by their rivals in Iran, particularly the Safavids in the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, to uh, seize Iraq from the Ottomans, and it's only the determined uh, efforts of the Ottomans that keep the Safavids from actually, or the Qajars or some other dynasty from actually taking over Iraq again. So there's this continuous uh, kind of theme, we might say, of uh, powerful dynasties or powerful states in Iran controlling good parts of Iraq or most of the Iraqi alluvium for significant periods of time. Since the 20th century, um, the rise of nationalist self-conceptions based usually in language identity um, have to some extent drawn a barrier between Iran, which is Persian speaking of course, and lowland Iraq, which is Arabic speaking. Although the uh, Shi religious orientation of many people in southern Iraq uh, means that they continue, ha had for centuries and continue to have uh, close connections with Iran, um, which at least since the 16th century has been a predominantly Shi'i country. Uh, and so we see the continuing pattern of connections uh, right up until today with lots of pilgrims uh, coming from Iran to visit the great Shi'i shrines uh, in Iraq that have been so much in the news lately, Karbala and Nejef. Uh, students coming from Iran to study at the schools of Karbala and Nejef or for that matter, students going from Iraq to study in the great uh, madrasas of Qom and other important Shi'i cities in Iran. Uh, and resulting from that, of course, uh, a certain amount of intermarriage between Persians and Iraqis uh, and trade coming along with this also. So there is a definite continuing pattern of um, sort of interaction between Iraq and Iran, even uh, in the face of this new awareness since roughly 1900 that while well, we are Arabs and they are Persians or vice versa depending on which side of the fence you're viewing this from. But when we look then at the area that we call today Iraq, it seems to me that we really identify uh, three or maybe four major 
sort of sub-regions within it, which frequently are affiliated with one another, but just as frequently have affiliations of other kinds and in other directions. Uh, of course, based on the main cities, Baghdad in the center, uh, Basra in the south, and Mosul in the north. And then the fourth possibility that we have to keep in mind is the uh, somewhat independent political trajectory of the Kurdish people who live to the north and uh, eastern part in, in the mountains to the north and east of the lowlands. So what this means for today is that the construction of a modern national Iraqi identity uh, is likely, I think, to be, uh, we can see it to be somewhat unevenly developed. There are certainly some people who feel this Iraqi identity very strongly, as Professor Gibson noted. Uh, I think this is especially true among the more secularized and, shall we say, detribalized, uh, more urbanized, more educated populations. And I think that the sense of an Iraqi nationality is greatly enhanced for everybody in the country whenever the country uh, confronts an external invader or external political meddling, uh, as it did, for example, uh, in the 20s and 30s, trying to first throw the British out or reduce their influence in the country uh, in the 1980s in the Iraq-Iran war. I think, that, as Professor Gibson again pointed out, there was a lot of, it kind of galvanized a sense of Iraqiness among many people, even among Shi'is who otherwise would have had uh, religious and other ties of affinity, you might say, with Iran. Uh, and of course, we have to ask how that's going to play out uh, today when the United States and Britain are uh, invading the country. This recent project then of building an Iraqi national identity is one which um, can draw, reach back to the historic, does reach back to the historic past and try to identify or identify as particular episodes that are especially inspiring and uses them to help bolster uh, the Iraqi people's sense of, their, of who they are and a, a kind of attachment uh, to the land of Iraq and to the other people who live there. Uh, so we go all the way back to the very beginnings of, the, of uh, Islamic Iraq with the Islamic conquests uh, in the seventh century. Um, I'm not going to try and relate all of Iraq's Islamic history for you tonight. I'm sure you'll be glad to know that. Um, but just to pick a couple of little episodes during the Islamic conquest, which of course is the expansion of uh, groups of mostly Arabian people uh, bearing the new religion of Islam uh, who enter Iraq as well as Syria and many other places and establish their hegemony over this area. Um, the narratives tell us about the heroic role of one uh, more or less local chieftain named Al-Muthanna ibn Haritha who was supposed to have been instrumental in launching some of the first raids, uh, helping to overthrow the Sasanian great kings who had ruled this area before the Muslims arrived and in that way helping the spread of Islam into Iraq. Uh, naturally, Al-Muthanna becomes a kind of national hero for Iraqis, uh, and in the, shall we say, official construction of Iraqi history, uh, this episode is, is very much played up. And so you find the name of Al-Muthanna in lots of places in Iraq, and you have ever since the beginnings of the nationalist period. Uh, there's, I think, a Muthanna bridge in Baghdad, and there's a Muthanna hospital, and there's a Muthanna publishing house, and there's a lot of Muthannas around, uh, including uh, there was a, something called the Nadi al-Muthanna, the Muthanna club, which is a kind of literary club 
was, is what it was called, I think, but it was actually a kind of nationalist club back in the 1930s and 1940s of Iraqis who were opposed to the British uh, interference uh, occupation and then sort of continuing interference in Iraq's affairs. And so this was the venue where they got together and talked about these things. So that's a, an example of an early, early episode in Iraq's Islamic history uh, where a name has been uh, sort of captured and recycled for use as a way of constructing or, or bolstering um, national identity. Um, the decisive battles of the Islamic conquests in Iraq, um, the Battle of Qadisiyah in particular, is again one of those names which is very resonant for Iraqis. And so you see the name of Qadisiyah again on all manner of institutions. Um, of a slightly different kind would be the uh, memory of the Battle of Karbala in 680, which was an extremely important episode in Shiite history. It was the uh, massacre of one of the Shiite imams by the forces of the Umayyads who were based in Damascus. You can imagine that that term was used when there were moments of great tension between the Iraqi Ba'ath Party and the Syrian Ba'ath Party. They probably played on that little episode. So these things become functional in these different contexts. But of course, the great episode in Iraq's Islamic history uh, for the construction of national identity today and in recent years is, of course, the uh, spectacular and undeniable glories of Baghdad's golden age and Iraq's, we might say, golden age of the medieval period from roughly the mid-8th century with the founding of Baghdad by the Abbasid dynasty uh, until the 12th century and even beyond, actually. When Baghdad uh, was really the center of a caliphal empire which uh, ruled a vast part of the world, by any measure we'd have to say that, uh, at its heyday it stretched from somewhere deep in North Africa uh, all the way across to the fringes of India and into Central Asia. Uh, and it was at the center of an even more uh, extensive uh, network of trade contacts uh, stretching down into the Indian Ocean, up into the plains of Central Asia, uh, into Europe and so on. Uh, and its reputation similarly was, shall we say, global in that era. Uh, so that we find, for example, hordes of, in the commercial dimension, we might say, uh, hordes of Abbasid coins uh, that are now dis being discovered or have been for many years discovered in Scandinavia where they've been buried by traders. So this was a kind of the, the coin of account and of, of commerce uh, for people even all in Sweden and places like that. Uh, or even in a way more interesting, perhaps, um, the discovery of a few what we might call imitations of Abbasid coins um, made by petty kings or rulers in England in the ninth century, showing that uh, even in distant England there was a sense that this was the great center of civilization, Baghdad, and they sort of knew about it even, even out there somewhere in the uh, farthest corners of Europe at this time, when Europe was a very, very undeveloped place. It was known, Baghdad, as the capital of the empire, was known for its vibrant intellectual life, uh, this, of course, is the great period of the translation of uh, Greek works of philosophy and science and medicine and so on into Arabic, and the production of new works that built on those works of uh, classical antiquity and extended their learning in new directions. Uh, it was also a period when many uh, original works 
that had nothing to do with greek the greek heritage were produced theological disputations of many kinds. it was famous for poetry and song and all kinds of high culture and i'm obviously not going to give you any of the details of it but this was the great center of world civilization in the ninth and tenth century it was in fact without any question the largest city in western eurasia maybe china had something to match it but that's not clear even the estimates are that baghdad in say the middle of the tenth century was roughly a million people or somewhat more which is truly colossal by pre-modern standards there was nothing anywhere in western eurasia to match it constantinople was probably this runner up and it may have been a half million paris probably at that time around ten thousand people a small town by today's standards but baghdad was a true city and far larger than any other metropolis in the whole of of eurasia western eurasia at least and of course there were thousands of great figures whose names then live on famously till today and these of course are also used by iraqi governments who wish to sort of enhance a sense of iraqiness and sort of glory in the past of the country not only the names of great caliphs like al-rashid and al-mansur who whose names are attached to palaces and quarters of cities and bridges and all these things but great writers like al-jahid although he was from basra but it was still part of the empire at the time poets famous figures in the development of islamic law and so on so these are just the kind of reference that modern nation builders look for they're historical in the true sense of having actually happened and they instill pride and a sense of depth to the people and attachment to their land time's running short here and I don't want to I'm not going to give you quite all of what I had originally planned to I want to move ahead and talk a little bit about the Ottoman period that is the period from about 1530 or 1534 until the first world war as I said a few minutes ago the Ottomans basically claimed and sometimes controlled Iraq during this period as considered to be a province or a series of provinces of the Ottoman Empire even though there were continuous attempts by Iranian dynasties to to conquer Iraq from the Ottomans and in this period of Ottoman hegemony I guess we can call it it seems to me we can see three primarily three major themes that I think are of interest to us as we consider not only the recent history of Iraq but its current history and and perhaps its future one is this question that I've alluded to before of regional autonomy again with the focal point being the three major cities from south to north Basra, Baghdad and Mosul we see that there are times when these three are together it's all sort of a single functioning entity but there are many other times when these areas are more or less running independently of one another and when there are powerful local groups sometimes they're simply called tribal groups that were powerful families if you want to call it that that really dominate a certain area and seem to have very little concern for what's going on in the rest of the country they have a kind of studied indifference to events in the other parts of the country 
So for example, in the, um, in the south, there are a couple of families or tribes that are dominant there in different periods. The Afrasiab tribe, for example, in the 17th century, runs Basra and its environs as a virtually autonomous area. Um, and when the Persians, for example, attacked Baghdad to the north of them, uh, several times actually in the 17th century, they basically just sort of stayed out of it. They let the Ottomans and the Safavids slug it out and sort of said, well, it doesn't, that doesn't affect us. They didn't seem to have a very strong identity uh, one way or the other. They were more interested in sort of maintaining their own uh, little operation in the south. Uh, the Muntifak tribal confederation in the south that really succeeded the Afrasiabids in the 17th and 19th century, uh, I think fell into much the same pattern. Um, and similarly in the north, uh, in the city of Mosul, um, members of the Jalili family were the dominant element in Mosul from the 1740s until the 1840s. Uh, they were usually governors there for the Ottomans, but they were um, virtually independent in their operations. That is, the Ottomans needed them in a sense more than they needed the Ottomans, one might say. And it's also interesting that after the Ottomans um, in 1843 really bring this area more tightly under their control, uh, Mosul is attached by the Ottomans sometimes to the city of Diyarbakir, sometimes to Hakkari, both of them now in southern Turkey, sometimes to, to Van, which is also in, in eastern Turkey, uh, and sometimes to Baghdad. So that there's a, it's not, again, clear that the natural affiliation of Mosul is with Baghdad because the, the uh, distri uh, distribution or disposition of these, uh, this area by the Ottoman government suggests that it could just as easily have been associated with areas to the north of it as with Baghdad to the south. And there's also, of course, a long-standing uh, fact of the city of Mosul having close commercial connections with the city of Aleppo in northern Syria today. There's actually a similar kind of, the relationship of, of Mosul to Baghdad is somewhat akin to the relationship between Aleppo in northern Syria to Damascus to the south. Uh, Aleppo and Mosul, in a sense, have closer ties to each other than either of them has to its, the putative capital of their countries in Damascus and in Baghdad. So there is this question then, this sort of vexing and nagging problem of regional autonomy in the recent history of Baghdad. I think that's, as I said, one of the things that contributes to the unevenness of the development of a modern sense of national identity. The second theme that one sees repeatedly in the Ottoman history of this area is, or in the history of Iraq in the Ottoman years, uh, and continuing, of course, right up till today, is the question of the Kurds and their uh, resistance to almost anybody's control over them. Um, they, the Kurds, of course, were caught, in a sense, in the Ottoman years between the Ottoman Empire to their west and the Safavid Empire to their east and the Safavid successors in Iran. Uh, in this rivalry between Ottomans and Safavids, the Kurds usually seem to have sided with the Ottomans. Um, after the Second World War, in particular, uh, continuing Kurdish agitation and uprisings for independence or autonomy were seen. These were always, of course, opposed or thwarted by the established governments of Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. Um, there was an attempt, for example, right after the Second World War uh, for the creation of a Kurdish republic 
in Russian-occupied Azerbaijan in 1946 and 47. Uh, but that was quick, as soon as the Russians withdrew, that was uh, scotched, yeah, it was uh, suppressed. Uh, and so what we see in the case of Iraq is a continuing series of resistance movements against the Iraqi government uh, on the part of the Kurds uh, practically every year. Something is going on. Some of them, it's, it's the norm that textbooks will talk about the rebellion of the years X to Y and Y to Z, but when you put them all together, it's sort of like this hardly anything but rebellion. So it just seems like it's a kind of continuing uh, process. So this, again, is, and often, especially in recent years, um, outside forces or outside uh, agents or governments have been involved in this sometimes. If they're trying to destabilize or weaken the Iraqi government, uh, a natural way to do it is for uh, you to try to aid the Kurds. So there were times in the Iraq-Iran war, of course, when Iran and apparently Israel also were sort of slipping aid, um, weapons and money and so on to the Kurds uh, in Iraq to sort of sustain them in their resistance to the Iraqi government, to distract the Iraqi government. So uh, so this kind of thing is a, a continuous and rather ugly problem. And it's a real problem that, uh, it, well, let's put it this way, uh, when we wage this war on Iraq, we open Pandora's box, and this is one of the things that's come out of the box. Again, it's been there though, all along, and it's simply not something we can turn our back on. I have no idea what a proper resolution of this problem would be, but it is a real problem. There are, after all, something like 18 to 20 million Kurds between Iran, Turkey, and Iraq. Another theme that we see uh, in relatively recent years is in Iraq's history is, and it's actually common to a good part of the Arab world in this period, uh, as well as in the history of Iran, is resistance to foreign, particularly Western intervention. Uh, or let's put it this way, there's a theme of foreign, particularly Western intervention, and as a consequence of that, a theme of resistance to it. I mean, we could even see the activities of the British East India Company in Iraq way back in the 18th and 17th centuries as the kind of the thin edge of the wedge of foreign intrusion into Iraq's affairs. Of course, much more acute was the question of British imperial interests, as well as uh, the activities of groups like the Iraq Petroleum Company, which was, after all, an Anglo-French-Dutch-American consortium designed to exploit Iraq's oil. Um, but especially the British, with their uh, occupation of Iraq as a mandate after the First World War, uh, and then they uh, technically withdrew and gave Iraq its independence quite early on under King Faisal. but. Uh, they retained a lot of influence over the country, uh, so the, the independence of Iraq was definitely tempered, and which is one. There was this then continuous effort by Iraqis to get the British really out of Iraq and end this uh, colonial or imperial chapter. I think this long-standing British sort of interference in Iraq's affairs had a lot to do with the violence of the 1958 coup d'etat, which brought down the monarchy. Um, Nouri Said, the head of government, perennial head of government, <laughs> we might say, in the years of the monarchy, was profoundly hated, detested in the country uh, because he was seen as a stooge for Western, particularly British, interests. He was, of course, also uh, a very repressive 
governor of the country himself. Uh, at one point, he, it is said that he had 10,000 political prisoners, so it sounds like things haven't changed much in Iraq. Um, I mentioned the support for the Kurds uh, by Iran, particularly during the Iran-Iraq War of the 1980s, uh, CIA plots against the regime. Uh, there are many um, possibilities here to look at, as well as, of course, the aspirations of the Turkish government uh, or the, their des possible designs on the northern part of Iraq. The Turks, after all, feel that um, when the Mudras Armistice was signed, which technically ended the hostilities at the end of the First World War, um, they, the Turks, were still in control of Mosul and the northern part of what is today Iraq. And they, f they feel that the, the British troops which moved up into that area after the signing of the armistice uh, were taking something away that, you know, there was an armistice and they should, the border shouldn't have moved. So they feel, or some of them may feel that there's a kind of uh, a Turkish, valid Turkish claim to this area. It's, of course, complicated by the activities of the Kurds in that area as well, as you all probably know just from reading the newspapers. So Iraqis, like most Arabs, have a very healthy wariness of European and American imperial designs. Uh, they're likely to be very suspicious of our motives, as you probably know from news reports again. Uh, it seems that they are suspicious of our motives. And I think that, you know, for that reason, we, uh, we may find, in fact, that uh, the history of the country will uh, allow Iraqis to be very grateful for the overthrow of Saddam Hussein, but after a year or so, they're going to say, you know, thank you very much, but now it's time for the Yankees to go home. And with that, I will stop and let you ask questions if you wish.